0: Hi there! Welcome to the From Lab to Launch podcast by Qualio, where we share inspiring stories from the people on the front lines of life sciences. Tune in and leave inspired to bring your life-saving products to the world. Now let's get started with Robert, Qualio founder and CEO and our show host.
1: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Grant, and I help produce this podcast. Before we dive into today's episode with Greg Yap and JP Sanday, who are both partners at Menlo Ventures, I wanted to give a shout out to a listener, Dark Knight Thirty Nine, who said it's interesting to hear the backstories of how companies got started and are solving problems today. Rob's accent is fun to listen to too, and we couldn't agree more there. But we appreciate all of our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We read everyone, and we'll share reviews on future episodes. Our mission here is to help companies launch and scale life-saving products. To launch and scale, a major milestone many founders need to achieve first is getting funding. That's why we wanted to get Greg Yap and JP Sanday on the show. Links to their full bios are in the show notes, but suffice it to say that they not only know the path of launching and scaling products and companies, but they've walked it. The main takeaways from today's show are number one, as a founder, know the difference between a platform company and a product company. Number two, if you're looking to raise capital, approach investors in an altruistic and human way. Greg and JP share their emails on their bios. Anyone can contact them. Greg also shares Menlo's 5P framework for investing, program, platform, portfolio, partnerships, and people. Number three, how has the value chain in life sciences evolved over time, and what is their outlook as investors on the future of regulated industries? Such as how most countries today end up adopting whoever has the most stringent regulations and how companies need to evolve to that. All right, let's get on with the episode. Greg, JP, welcome
0: to the podcast today. I really appreciate you both taking the time to chat. I know I've had the fortune to be able to get to know you both and, and the awesome team at Menlo over the past few months. And I think having the time to learn from you and ask you some questions and, and hear your Thoughts about life sciences and where the industry is going and then fundraising in particular, I think will be incredibly valuable to the Qualio team who will listen, but also our our global audience as well. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Robert. Good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's great to be part of the the Qualio family as well.
0: I appreciate that. And for everybody who doesn't know, uh, Greg and JP, I won't give your bios, but I'll just say that I think where you got some really amazing insights here, both from Coming up from within healthcare and life sciences, and also coming from the finance side and just the software investment side as well. I'm not sure if you'd like to give the, the 15 second bio as to what forms your view on the world. And then I, I think I could dive into about a million questions. We'll only get to a few.
3: Sure. So I guess my 15 second version, Greg's is more interesting, but I my career is like an Oreo cookie. I started as an investor 16 years ago, I was an uh, operator for seven years and then I came back to being an investor with a totally different level of empathy and in my first stint as an investor I was part of a a firm that invested in a QMS called Sparta and I had looked at both technology and healthcare and so the appreciation of the two coming together and empowering more advancements in life sciences and healthcare is something I've had my eye on for quite some time and haven't seen it from the inside like Greg, but again, like in that Oreo cookie, the middle is always the best part, but the full thing is a pretty interesting bite.
2: I'm kind of the life science half of our of our pairing. You know, I've been an investor only for the last four years, but the 20 before that was all in life sciences and healthcare and operating roles, you know, and, and have lived some of the problems and, and challenges that your customers face. You know, I worked at Roche for a few years. I ran their cancer diagnostics assay division. And that role went through the FDA six different times, with class two and class three. You know, I've lived through you know product launches. We, our portfolio included 400 IBD products. You know, and wow. I've even lived through things like an FDA recall. And so have have experienced some of the uh, challenges of of quality management. You know, from a, from a user perspective, for sure.
0: Thanks, Greg. Thanks, JP. So when we've surveyed our customers and when we speak to people in the industry, what's consistently the number one challenge that's always on everybody's mind, just like any startup or scale-up company is, is typically capital. How do we raise money? Where do we get it from? How do we deploy that? So I think for, for my questions today, lots of it will focus on that journey. But before I get there, I think there's some things that will be really valuable to pause on. One is that in venture capital, you're obviously looking at the world the way it was, the world as it is today. But you're trying to make bets on the way the world is going to be and i talk as long as people will give me airtime about the changes in, in the industry as i see it but i, I think what would be really interesting is to get your perspective and again so at gip you're part of the quality team you're like like h1 insights so you're in this replatforming of the life sciences industries and area you're you're building a lot of expertise in and greg I'm not sure how many good boards you're on right now, but there's some amazing companies you're getting to see how they operate from the inside. So I'm curious from both your perspectives, what's the change you're seeing in, in life sciences right now?
3: Yeah, so I will give credit to Greg for H1 because he led our Series A investment, which was oh, the reason we had the great opportunity to co lead the B anyway. But I'd say, look, there are three big things that when we were setting out to say, okay, what parts of life sciences do we need to sort of that will undergo the most change or will feel the most stress and in what order because timing does matter and so if you think about following a molecule as an example all the way through from the r d and research and discovery of that molecule all the way through commercialization there are a lot of different steps in that process and at the beginning of that journey is kind of where we started investing in a company called benchlink and again, Greg can talk a little bit more about our investments in actual therapeutics companies that are really at the front lines and experiencing this firsthand, uh, firsthand. but Benchling really becomes, I guess, the system of record and, and, and kind of the collaborative platform for that process that is very difficult Uh, if you don't have it or was difficult. I think the pain has started to be felt more as molecules became more complex over time. And so Mm -hmm. that change within that market caused that to be a more relevant platform where people were willing to part with large dollars to go solve a now new problem that they had on their hands, not only efficiency, but a way to be more effective. And then if you follow the molecule through, you know, an area that we've looked into and are still looking into is kind of when you start the clinical trial process, that's an area that we think is poised for a lot of disruption there's a lot of interesting companies that are thinking about the decentralization of clinical trials i think last year was very transformative to that market we were looking into it before that but i think it really is going to be a big catalyst we think about the big problem in that market is that the same patients and the same investigators are being pinged again and again there's a lot of burnout from people that run clinical trials and so identification of enlisting more patients to participate in particular as you get into biologics and more precision medicine is more and more important and then if you move forward through okay now these life sciences companies have to sort of start engaging with the medical community before that drug makes it out into the market that's where h1 comes in to try to give kind of the science and the commercial arm you know a little bit of, of like a transition um, you know for medicine and, and, and embodied in these medical affairs teams that they have and I tell you, along the way, one of the things that we identified is, you know, well, no matter what, there are a few key systems that are needed, lot, you know, in, in in addition to all the ones that we just mentioned. And, and quality is one of them, because to even have a prayer to get it out into market, you got to be able to prove quality and you got to be able to, um, you know, get approval from the FDA. And so... That's an area that had a lot of solutions, but not a lot of great solutions for the way the market was shifting and the three things I tell you was one about regulation like that's only going in one direction that's up. And it's also becoming more stringent it's extending to more parts of the chain, I guess the value chain or the supply chain, so to speak, and i'll talk about that in a second and they're starting to harmonize. So it's mm. almost like, and I guess it's the opposite mm. of the least common denominator, but it's like the most stringent one is the one everybody matches, right? Privacy, in the world yeah. of privacy, this happens <laughs> with GDPR and then CCPA and other things. And so I think the same thing's happening. If Europe raises the bar, the FDA wants to be just as stringent or, mm. or more. And so, and I think those things are for, for good reason, right? That protects us as patients and protects us as consumers. So it's not a bad thing, but that's a reality. And then the second one is, uh, we talked about that supply chain. You know, look at the vaccine for COVID. Those are all collaborative efforts. These are, there's a lot more partnership happening. Uh, and Greg will probably talk about our investment in a company called Recursion, which is now very happy, quality of customer. But that's becoming a more collaborative, decentralized process with a lot of different mm. companies mm-hmm. kind of participating in the kind of a molecule making it all the way out into people's bodies or a medical device or yeah. whatever it is. And so there's more people that need it. And then the third piece would just be. Look, the nature of these companies is changing. These aren't just monolithic companies, again, decentralized, and they're very, you know, there's a lot more AI-driven companies like Recursion or Syntego really pushing the boundaries of a lot of different uh, technologies around CRISPR. And so I think that calls for a different system that doesn't slow you down when you need to ensure more and more quality, more and more operating procedures need to be tracked and measured and, and really building quality into the fabric of who you are, mm. right? The most innovative companies really truly believe that. And both Syntego and Recursion are both uh, Qualio customers. And that was a big part of our process to understanding that this is really that change, those winds of change and the mm-hmm. need now for something like this really demands a more modern, flexible, quick to implement solution that doesn't impede somebody from speed and quality, but enhances it. So I'll stop there. It's way too long, but
0: that's that's, that's kind of an
3: off the cuff way to think about it. Thank you,
0: JP. Greg, for you, I always say that, you know, this industry hasn't moved very much in a hundred years or since aspirin first came on the marketplace for, for lots of reasons. I, I also, the world has changed now. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, why?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think the, the world has changed dramatically, you know, and I think part of my coming to Menlo you know, as a life science person coming into a technology firm was really this notion of convergence, right? Of, of information technology, being able to help accelerate these kind of revolutions in biology. JP mentioned recursion, which I think is a great example of computer vision, meeting biology, mm-hmm. bringing us to unprecedented scale and producing a very uh, a very broad pipeline right thirty programs you know four of which in the clinic you know pretty remarkable for a company of that age but I think there's lots of other you know examples within this kind of one of our thesis areas is around platform technologies is there a technology that can really accelerate you know really you know not just a single asset you know those can be the traditional biotech companies that are kind of focused around individual assets those can be great mm-hmm. investments you know being honest those are probably not menlo investments right we're looking for something that has a A technology platform that could really produce a whole portfolio of medicines. You know, something that that has a you know we we value the the program as well. We've published on this five P framework, right? Where program is is a critical component. It's the first component, but platform and portfolio are two and three, right? And so, seeing that combination is something that we definitely anchor on for our therapeutics investments.
0: That's nicely stated. With that, I think the platform piece I've heard you speak about before and. Both of you, and I always say this as well, is that it's like philosophy matters now. And I think that's that's one of the most exciting things is to see that be incredibly important. And it's definitely definitely one of the lessons I've learned from COVID. And I'm curious, has the last 12 months and the craziness of that, has that impacted your thesis or your, your thought about the future very much?
2: On the therapeutic side, you know, in some ways, it has heightened, I think, people's appreciation for mm. therapeutics. Yeah, if we recall back to just prior to the pandemic, right, the, the worst regarded industry on the planet, the court of public opinion, was yeah. pharmaceutical companies, right? That was like literally the worst, right? And now, you know, I think there's some of that criticism was earned, right? That some of that criticism no. was stuff that the industry really needed to, to take a look at. And some of it has changed and some of it, frankly, hasn't. But I also think people have gotten a much stronger appreciation, right? The, the life-saving nature of medicines, right, has been emphasized over the past year yeah. as well. That's helpful for our industry, right, to remind people of, you know, why so much money goes into this industry and why so much money, frankly, comes out of this industry is because it has such a big big impact on, on people's lives.
0: Yeah, I like how you said that. I'm curious with capital you think that with this shift broader shift in the world how has capital changed as as a vehicle to help companies succeed again if people are always asking even quality like about their fundraising plans and their capital plans are always part of the discussion about when they engage and how they grow their businesses has that changed or is there any lessons here for companies thinking about their their journey that they should maybe change from the advice of about 10 years ago how to plan on getting to where they want to get
3: I think it's always kind of been our mentality at Menlo that, you know, despite the fact that today, like, I mean, I don't think anybody worries about there being a shortage of capital or a shortage of options for it. And, and we're getting ever more creative with the ways it's packaged and yeah. sold, so to speak. I think it's easy to get distracted to think that capital first and strategy mm-hmm. and long-term plan second, because yes. it is almost like the notifications on your phone right? It is just in your face. It is in every news source. It is in everything we talk about, like we've been desensitized to the word billions. I think that's very addicting to listen to that and to, and to always be thinking, you know, how can I get a piece of that? Or or how can I, Mm -hmm. you know, every company doesn't end up being a $10 billion company and that's okay. You know, I think the more important thing is to say, how can capital be an enabler, and not a distraction, mm-hmm. you know, I think we view our phones in a very similar way. It's kind of a random thought, but if you think about this phone, this is really an enabler to your life and everything you're doing. It enhances what you're doing, but the second it starts becoming a burden, you start hating this device or you start hating that th- that side of it. And I think it's yeah. really important is the capital can function in a lot of the same ways, honestly, you certainly have to secure your future. But don't let the fact that you have money in the coffers change or make you do unnatural things. I think we've learned a lot of lessons of companies to start doing unnatural things and, and unnatural because it's not authentic to who the founders are. It's not authentic to that culture. It's not authentic to maybe, and it's also probably not practical given the market that they're in because I always talk about a market is not only about the capital you pour and you can put a million reps out there with a bunch of quota, but the market absorption rate doesn't change. The market is going to absorb your product at the rate at which it is meant to. The capital doesn't necessarily change that. And so, at least of the capital, not on the on the company that's trying to sell it. And so, again, you know, strategy and vision first, capital second. Yeah, I just oh, you're like building you on that.
2: that. I think that it's capital exists to help you meet business milestones, right? I think that was that was how I felt as an entrepreneur. That's how I feel as an investor. Right. And, and Robert, you must be thinking through all of these things as well. Right. But to me, of course. you know, the, the capital raising has gotten bigger and bigger and it's gotten to be splashier and splashier. But it's really all about, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you hit the business milestones that are necessary for the long term success of the business?
3: I mean, just think yeah. about this, Robert. An IPO is not a liquidity event, that's a financing of a company. No. But a lot of people forever have looked at it as like an exit. Yeah. It's not an exit. It's a financing event. It's a different stage, a different company. Yeah. You know, the type of company you have to run once that happens. So, even more so today, everybody thinks more about that as an exit than ever before. But surely you can you can exit afterwards. But hopefully, you're building a company beyond the point of IPO because then you're on the yeah. trend. <laughs> I don't.
1: Think,
0: I don't think the S one the S one says this is how the founders exit. I'm not sure that would. would yeah, would that would
1: don't play that well. Yeah, yeah. Would it? yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, actually, there is a trend though towards it. yes, that's a fundraising milestone. But just like in in the software businesses, in the life sciences across like devices, to therapeutics, and and bio, we're seeing companies stay private longer still in some ways. And some of that that we see coming down to you can get much further. And you see examples of that like another um. Irish fund founded company. I always fly the flag, you know, uh, uh, you know Ginkka BioWorks, right? One of YC's YC's biggest bio company today, to and one, one of our customers. there, an awesome company. Y combinator funding life sciences? That would have been ten years ago, right? That would have been like, what are you talking about? But now it's this is possible. So I think this acceleration we see, it's uh, really exciting to see smart people be able to dip their toe in and not have to IPO before they even get a prototype. So that's really exciting for me. What do you folks look for in companies now? And I'll talk about the replatforming piece in, you know, like the bench links quality of the H ones, and companies like that. But purely in in your space, Greg, when you folks are looking at the life sciences and investments, what does it take today, and what gets you excited?
2: I mentioned the five P's briefly. That mm-hmm. that is, I think, an important framework that we use, right? And those five P's, you know, first is program, right? We're looking mm-hmm. kind of a traditional life science evaluation of the of the value of the lead programs so that. Is that a drug that's going to be able to help a lot of patients? Is that a drug yeah. that there's a good economic path for? you know the second and third are, are related right in platform and portfolio. Is this something that could be a more than a single asset company, more than a single target company? Right? is it something that can work across a range of disease states right Is it a technology platform that has a, some sustainable advantage? every platform you know gets competed with over time, but is this does this platform have a long run? The fourth for us is partnerships is there an opportunity for this company to partner to get external capital you know to get external validation you know, these therapeutics companies it is a long time for them to get to market and so what are the ways that you can get you know and then a lot of times you know a lot of the stuff is happening behind the screen you know can the company show some external validation and create these partnerships to to be able to continue to, to drive the fundraising stories you know the other point I'd make on partnerships is that I tend to be a little bit more pro-partnerships than some of my investing colleagues. And the reason is because I, I like to invest in real platforms, right? And if it's a true platform, a lot of times the question is, okay, I don't want to give away the crown jewels. You know, I've been in board meetings even this last few weeks. You know, the lead programs are often thought of as the crown jewels. But if it wow. is truly a platform, right, then the probability that the first asset is the best asset is actually mathematically not very high. That platform should be able to produce a series of assets. And therefore, you know a company's willingness to partner should not actually generate too much opportunity cost for that company because you do have a lot of opportunities that can come behind it and then the, the last the last piece quickly is people. you know I think the other place where we uh, where we are a little different from some of the traditional life science firms is that we don't uh, kind of take a, an idea out of academia and hire the whole management team and and build the whole company ourselves. you know we like to back founders, right we like to back entrepreneurs who are building the teams or Going through and, and doing the work. And many of our of our peers in life sciences now have kind of shifted more to the incubation model where they kind of do that work themselves. You know, we want to actually find those those founders who are who are in it for the long haul.
0: Thank you. I was going back to the platform piece. And I think it's worth calling out that my first experience in the industry directly was like the mid 2000s. And even in the early days of quality, a lot of the interactions we would have are with companies who are trying to get a hit and then the hit is the path to the successful exit or path. But what I'm hearing here is, and I actually see this myself in you know, watched industry, it's, it's the ability to generate hits is where the big value is, right? It's the platform that enables you to be a repeatable generator. I think is where the real value comes from, which I think yeah, is really I, important yeah. to really call out.
2: Yes, I, I guess I would say, from my view, there's a balance, right? I think the, yeah. the platform that's generating the hits is important, but then the biological validation of what do those hits really mean? You know, the yeah. higher throughput a platform is by its nature, the more false positives comes out of it, right? That's just math, right? And so if you don't have that combination of you know kind of high throughput data driven, you know, that's where the technology piece comes in. And then the yeah. biology of being able to really sort that larger flow of data and to find from there the the true gold, it's that pairing, I think, that makes the difference for the for the companies that we really like.
0: So that seems like actionable advice there, um, knowing people who worked in various R&D roles myself, that there's always excitement about the thing that might work when it feels like when you when you see that area, it's it was a good question to ask about making sure that the the repeatability and how you discover that shouldn't be over-overlooked. I think that's really important. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you for sharing that, Greg. I sure. it. So the tech stack. We saw, I'll often give the example of the DevOps landscape and how that uh, empowered an army of companies, like a lot of your software portfolio to become enormous companies and scale at speed, you know, gracefully as you can at that speed of growth. But, you know, AWS, you get this massive DevOps landscape. I, I see that there is a, we're kind of seeing a repeat of that in life sciences right now. And you folks are becoming like specialists in IC and, in trying to like, be part of that wave, eventually you know, being the first and the biggest of its kind, I think being the flying the flag, you got H1 Insights, you got also Qualio, and you're seeing these companies come to enable this next wave. What's your thesis around that and the importance of that?
3: I think this is the difference between a product and a platform. A lot of companies say platform because they feel like it gets them a higher valuation and gets ex- investors excited, but a platform. We have certain characteristics that we look for in a company. You know, sometimes they are just a great product and it's just could be really revolutionary for that department, that vertical, that whatever uh, type of worker, whatever it is. But when you really have a platform, those are the ones and you can have great success doing that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Platforms are the ones that become enduring public companies most of the time if they don't get scooped up sooner. But those are the ones that people look to and then maybe it wasn't apparent initially, but eventually you start understanding how their future products really weave in together and how hopefully even one day you give it to people to build on top of. That's really a platform. Like at first Salesforce could have been easily looked at as just a database of a bunch of customers and a bunch of leads slowly but surely As they start rolling out different things and and the architecture then makes itself a little bit available to people to build on top of. You can now build a life sciences company worth over a hundred billion dollars right on top of it uh, in Viva. And so I think BenchLink, certainly you could view it as just the digitized version of the lab notebook. But that would be really myopic in understanding both what Saji wants to do and the way that they've always viewed themselves. And I think that's what we try to look for, is how realistic is it for people to really build on top of this in an enduring fashion, such that it has many acts to its life, not just one, one act. And certainly sometimes that one act is big enough and great enough that is just fine. But I tell you, so there's this framework we use, and kind of relates to your prior question, but there's this framework that we use to evaluate certain Companies, at least in the, in the software world, and it applies a lot to vertical software in particular, but it applies anywhere. And it doesn't necessarily people don't always hit all of these, but but this is when when they do, you realize you have the ingredients of something that could be special, as special as something like. And, you know an AWS or some, some other platform or business that really extends these tools, again, enabling tools for someone or for others in an ecosystem to really shine, right, to really push the boundaries of, of how productive they can be or how far they can take, in this case, science. But in our memo for Qualio, we actually mentioned this because you guys are, the, we call it the trifecta, and there's three pieces. And I'll read them because it's exactly like it, it, people who know Qualio, and I think you'll, you'll understand this, that you pretty much hit all aspects of it. The first one is that this company, this platform, this product can stand alone and eliminate all sorts of automated or what we consolidate and automate a bunch of what we call busted workflows. So these are either some ways that people are working around things in a very manual way that uh, needs to not just be digitized, but also automated. The second one is that it, it can become a system of record that allows data to be written into it or process other data and kind of create unique insights and become some a sort of data plane into the operations of that department or that business or that vertical or whatever or that company. And the last one is that it attracts multiple constituents or counterparties into it so that there's the power of the network effects and that the next person that's in the system gives value to everyone else that's in the system in particular the ones that are connected right a supplier mm-hmm. and it's, its customer or vendors or things like that and that allows better flow of information seamless integrations between parties and and workflows and each of those independent workflow that product can work independently for each of them and becomes very special when they're united. And so there's a lot of monetization opportunities around that, for the company or for those parties. And so you can kind of see you're smiling because, like, it's like bam, 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 right? Like that's kind of what value is in a lot of ways. But those
0: I should have read really that those, before I did our pitch deck.
3: Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, so good job. Good on you. Uh, but no. I think that's really um, all those new advancements in technologies and, and ways for people to move faster and push further. Platforms really do that and never confuse a platform with a product.
2: Maybe I'll just add to that thing. That I, I think this is one of the places where we're really, you know, the, the teamwork for us really comes into play, right? Because I think we you know, we we invest a lot in vertical SaaS across a lot of different areas, you know, but I think one of the areas that we have picked out as an area rich with opportunity from a customer side, you know, and therefore rich with opportunity from an entrepreneur and, and a company building side, you know, is in life sciences, right? Where there's there are so many workflows, you know, I've lived some of them, you know, your customers have lived a ton of those that you know, up and down their business, right? I mean, you know, JP mentioned, right? You can talk about in the R&D side, you can talk about in the in the development side and, and manufacturing and regulatory side, you can talk about in the commercial and go-to-market and medical fair side, right? The clinical trial side, there's there's tons of these workflows that have resisted automation for many years for a lot of different reasons, right? Inertia, regulation, right? There's a lot of reasons why it has, but that just means that as we now get into the kind of this, this new wave of vertical SaaS companies, mm. that life sciences is therefore a, a quite a an area that is ripe for you know for rapid conversion we think at this point right it was slow to convert yeah. in the previous generations right very painful but now we feel like that's the acceleration of that is happening across many parts of that continuum
0: that's incredibly well stated thanks folks yeah i know we're about to wrap up and I got a list of rapid fire questions from the team based on the things that they get asked by the marketplace. You don't have time for all of them, but I, I guess one simple one, and anyone can take this for for the quick response is when should companies start thinking about the quality regulatory pathway and start getting it right? Because you know that's, that's the question every company has. And Greg, you might be the person who sees yeah. this go right and go wrong.
2: I'll take that one because I've been a startup CEO <laughs> and I've been a general manager at a large company and a medium sized company. You, yeah. you have to start thinking about quality when you start thinking about the product, right? That's the, you yeah. know, if you, if in our space, if you're building a regulated product or if you're building a product that could potentially be a regulated product, you have to start thinking about quality when you start, when you start conceiving of the product. Otherwise, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. And as an investor, how do you, how important do you view that? It's critical, right? To me, yeah. we, if these products, The
2: only way these products make an impact on human health right, is if they can go through and stand up against all of the things that are required of them from a regulatory and quality perspective. Otherwise, they will not be out there helping patients.
3: To quote Greg on something during our discussion, never, also never lose sight of one fact. If you sell to a regulated company in life sciences, you therefore are regulated in a lot of ways. And so maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly. So you might, you know, that risk is being transferred all the way back as far as possible. Yeah. So you better believe that people are gonna need everyone in the chain to be up to snuff.
0: It's actually why so much of our a large percentage of our customers are part of the supply chain into the IP owners. Yeah. So that that's useful. And last thing, we're very fortunate to have partners like you to support us and be part of our team and to talk about the future and you know get smarter together. How do people find investors like you? How do people who are having an idea, how do they get in touch in a way that makes you pay attention?
3: We always kind of pride ourselves in always responding to people that take the time not to blast us, but to try to engage with us authentically because that's kind of the kickstart of what we believe to be a very intimate and personal relationship with someone for hopefully a very long time. That's why we place so much emphasis on the people and the entrepreneur and the founder mm-hmm. when we when we invest. And so A lot of times it's us also trying to get in touch with folks like you, Robert, and trying to be very thoughtful in the way we do that because you get hounded and and your time is incredibly valuable. For us, people think we're in the capital allocation business, we're actually in the human capital allocation business, which means our time and certainly if we start spending time in an area our capital will likely follow and so it's we'd be doing an injustice to our current founders if we didn't focus but i think when people reach out to us it's really good to understand who you're who we are when you reach out to us and what you know we put a lot out there in terms of our points of view and Mm -hmm. um how we never view ourselves as like inaccessible to people. It's just that we're not that type of firm, and we welcome everybody to to reach out to us. Uh, you know, our emails are on our website, so and those are our real emails, and so we encourage people to use those. But you know, I'd always know say that the catches our attention is when people really take the time to know who we are and what we're about, and really assessing up front if we're going to be a good fit for them. That's really important.
2: Yeah, and I would say, I mean, we do get a lot of inbound, so we, it is hard to to get back to everyone. So I do think it's practically an introduction you know, LinkedIn is a great way to figure out who we know in common, right? And a, and an intro from another entrepreneur, you know, is absolutely going to get our attention every single time we'll get our attention. Um, and then like JP saying, you know, knowing a little bit about us, I mean, I, I would say the people who I don't bother to write back are the people who have written me and clearly don't know, haven't, don't know anything about me. I right? don't know. The, I, I'm pretty public about the kinds of things that I'm interested in. And if people think about those things they can they can make those conversations with investors not just me but conversations mm-hmm. with all
0: investors more efficient well i think that's everything we are a bit over time but i appreciate it. i could hang on for another hour here to get through all my questions jp and greg uh, this has been really awesome thank you for taking some of your your day to chat and, and share some of your wisdom i know a lot of people will be very excited to hear it
3: Our thanks pleasure. robert thanks for having us and um, we're both really excited to be partnered with you
0: for listening to this week's episode of from lab to launch brought to you by qualio if you like what you've heard please subscribe and give the show a positive review it really helps us out for more information about qualio our guest today or to be a guest on a future episode please refer to the show notes until next time